You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We would like to thank Blue Apron for their continued support of SpyCast. We are grateful you are in the SpyCast family. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So we're joined today by Charlie Mitchell, who is the editor and co-founder of Inside Cybersecurity, a website launched in 2013 as the first online news service dedicated to exploring the politics and policy challenges of securing cyberspace. His writing focuses on congressional debates over cybersecurity, the landmark framework of cybersecurity standards crafted by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, policy ramifications of major hacking events, and cyber developments in the telecom, energy, financial, and other sectors. He is the former editor-in-chief of Roll Call, for those inside the Beltway, they used to know this pretty well, maybe not so much in middle America, but it's a very important uh, uh, news source that we, we, we certainly uh, all pay attention to here in Washington. When he was there, he built one of the most respected investigative units in the nation and previously served as a senior editor and writer at National Journal's Congress Daily. He is the author of a new book called Hacked, The Inside Story of America's Struggle to Secure Cyberspace. It's out now, uh, and it's a fascinating book. So thank you, Charlie, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. So we've had people on SpyCast before talking, talking about cybersecurity, and there are a number of books out there that deal with the topic. And it, for me, it seems like there's a new one every single day. But you've been able to use your expertise and experience on Capitol Hill to write a very different book about cyber, one that focuses on the bureaucratic struggles to try to get some kind of a national strategy in place for the cyber realm. How, how did this book idea come about? It, it really came about because the cybersecurity question and the challenge kept popping up in all of the issue areas that, that my company, Inside Washington Publishers, covers. We cover energy, we cover trade and, and health and all of this, and cyber kept coming up as a, as a problem and the type of issue that it was pretty clear that the policymakers didn't have their heads around how they were going to deal with it. And there just seemed to be this big blank canvas where there should have been a strategy, a national policy. And so I wanted to step back a little bit and try and fill in the pieces and say, this is where the government is on this. This is when you hear about the, these hacks, 
These are the people who are trying to contend with it. And this is why oftentimes it hasn't worked and how they're trying to improve that. Right. It's really impossible to think about cyber and not feel a little overwhelmed by how many moving parts right. exist within this field. So let's break some of them down. Let's look at some of the major themes. And, and one of the ones that people may have not considered is the kind of the public-private dynamic of cyber. Because the overwhelming majority of what needs to be protected is not government. It's the private sector. These are, these are companies that uh, most of our important information is in. And not just things like the target breach, but also... Right. You know, defense things, Lockheed Martin, and some right. of these other these other aerospace defense companies that are being hacked, and so it's very difficult to get everybody on the same page when you're talking about this. This is this is the central focus of everything, right? Think Democrats and Republicans. Do the government do it? Do the private industry do it? Cyber seems to be wrapped up in all of this, right? And the common statistic that you hear is eighty-five to ninety percent of critical infrastructure is in private hands, and, and that doesn't even get at places like Sony Pictures, which suffered this very famous breach a couple of years ago. How do you secure those? Um, in the critical infrastructure sector, where you're talking about keeping the lights on, keeping the water flowing and all, there are some standards, but it, there isn't a real comprehensive approach. And so we, we've kind of looked at it sector by sector, and there's a real need to look at it across sectors. And this is what really interested me, that it's not just something that health is going to look at or energy is going to look at. And the lessons that they learn are applicable across both. Now, one of the key things is how the regulators in each of these sectors deal with it. And in some, you can probably imagine the banking sector is very aggressive, and they have regulators who are all over them on this issue. And the banks themselves have, have a pretty good track record. Uh, the health sector has dealt with it in a different way, and you've seen the vulnerabilities in right. that sector. And they are trying rather desperately to catch up. And then you have a lot of you know, people who are in between. And then you know, I mentioned Sony. Sony. Sony Pictures is not a critical infrastructure sector, but we saw this breach, allegedly at the hands of the North Koreans, that caused huge, huge costs and, and damage and, and outrage, really. And it showed how an attack almost anywhere in the economy has unforetold repercussions and, and you know, can have very serious costs. And you just don't know what it's going to lead right. to. Well, it was a big enough deal that President Obama came out and said, what are you doing? They're right. not, not releasing this movie. Um, one of the key issues that I was somewhat surprised, I mean, I've read a lot about this, but certainly not on the business side as much as the intelligence side, is that the complement, that's a wrong word, it's, it's, the, <laughs> uh, it, it's the, the, the problematic issue of liability protection. The right. idea that we want these companies to share when they've been breached, we want them to let us know, let the government know when there has been important information that's been stolen, but they're very worried about being sued right. for billions and billions of dollars. Right, right. Yeah, you can be sued or you can face liability in terms of regulations and regulatory action. And Congress finally, after about five years, managed to pass a law last year, at the end of last year in December, called the Cybersecurity Act of 2015, which included liability protection for companies. If you share and you follow certain guidelines for exchanging cyber threat indicators, you are protected. You're given legal immunity from lawsuits if things leak out or whatever. But the important thing here is if one company sees 
a cyber threat indicator, an indication of an anomaly on the system, and passes that along. That signature can be used by others to block attacks. So the, the proponents of this want to create what they liken to a national weather service. And you can almost imagine it, where you have a map and you're seeing these little pinprick attacks and you have analysts who are looking and assessing these things and they can connect the dots and say, well, wait a minute, this is coming from here. These are the common features of these attacks. This is what you need to do to protect yourself. And in some sectors, I mentioned the financial sector, they are already very advanced on this right. and are known to do a good job. Well, it's all it's all behind the curtain, so we think they are known to do a good job. But what the goal is now is to get a lot of other industries involved in it, and there still is a nervousness about it. Even though the law says you're going to get liability protection, I still hear from companies who say, you know what, my general counsel said, don't go near this. We don't know what's going to happen, and we don't really understand how this liability protection is going to work. And so you see the Department of Homeland Security, among others, putting out almost a continuous stream of reassurances to companies and explanations. And like most everything in the cyber policy area, we're, we're still very much at the creation point right now. So right. it's all a work in progress. I mean, beyond being sued, there are, there are non-official problems for these companies as well. If they release information that they've been hacked, stock market could right. go crazy and people right. could feel like they shouldn't shop there anymore because their credit cards aren't, aren't being secure and other things like that that are beyond even being sued. Absolutely. And that is a, that's a huge hurdle to get over. And can you share this information in a way that it's not going to get out? This isn't necessarily aimed at, at public disclosure that it happened, but it's, it's aimed at getting it into the intelligence matrix so that people can make use of right. it. But the, the fear that you just mentioned is pervasive, and people are, I think, rightfully concerned about it. And the, the natural instinct is, holy cow, I'm not going to do something that could damage my brand or right. whatever. You want to, you know, I, I think the first reaction among a lot of companies is if we get hacked, patch this thing as quickly as we can, keep the wraps on it, don't let anybody know about it, and let's move on. Yeah, I want to finalize one last major theme before we kind of dig down a little bit, and I think that's privacy considerations. So right. the big issue about information sharing, uh, particularly after the Snowden leaks, right. uh, is the concern by organizations like the SLU and even less, I mean, the SLU is loved by some and hated by others, but even even less problematic groups, even even less controversial groups are saying, look, you know, there's an issue with private companies sharing customer information. There's an issue right. with private companies sharing data or metadata with the government that there needs to be some kind of privacy considerations involved in these bills. And there's this back and forth that's real, real issue to kind of get a broad right. strategy nationwide. Right. And in the bill that was signed into law last year, well, Obama, President Obama opposed earlier versions over exactly that point, saying the privacy protections weren't strong enough. And they went back and forth over a couple of years between Capitol Hill and the White House and trying to work this out. The ACLU was actually very much in the room and came to favor one of the approaches and did give that their blessing, which was interesting. Some of the, the groups refused to bless any of these products or compromises. Um, there was a 
there was a way that was devised largely in the House Homeland Security Committee, and uh, that's chaired by a guy named Mike McCall. He's a Republican from Texas, and not really the kind of character you would think would be sitting down with the ACLU, but they ended up having a pretty decent relationship and, and getting onto the same page. And I think McCall was one of the folks who realized very early on, we're not going to accomplish anything in this space until we can offer some assurance on the privacy side. And this is a thing where we really need people talking to one another and doing all of these type things. But if there's a lack of trust, it's not going to happen. Right. You know, talking to each other in Washington is usually right. not something that happens all too often. I think uh, one of the next things I want to get into is really kind of within government problems because right. this is a little wonky, but it, it's just as important to understand why there isn't a big, broad consensus here. There's no real jurisdiction over cyber. There's dozens of congressional right. committees that have a piece of this. Can you talk a little bit about I mean, this talk about individual agencies as sure. well. Right. And, and they go hand in hand. The congressional committees like to... You know, they like to favor the, the departments that are under their jurisdiction. And so you have a lot of push and pull that way. Uh, there are, you know, you, you get different counts, but there are 100 committees and subcommittees that can claim some jurisdiction over cybersecurity issues. So just think about right. that. I mean, that's a prescription for paralysis and just, you know, endless blather that doesn't really get us anywhere. Um, the committees all very jealously guard their territory on this. And I, I thought there was a funny example that John McCain, senator from Arizona, chairs the Senate Armed Services Committee. He took that position after the last election when the Republicans regained control of the Senate. Previously, he had called for a special committee on cybersecurity, saying that, that there should be one panel dedicated to cybersecurity. When McCain got the chairmanship of the Armed Services Committee, well, he wasn't so interested in that idea anymore because armed services has a big piece of cyber jurisdiction. Um, there's an interesting guy from Delaware, Tom Carper, who's the senior senator from there, and he's the top Democrat on the Homeland Security Committee in the Senate. And I asked him about this idea of creating a, a cyber committee, and he thought that, well, one of the problems is the banking committee is going to have to continue looking at cyber issues, and the health committee, the same. So what he proposed was kind of a super committee right. that would have the chairman of all of these different panels and would have regular meetings and would be invested with the authority to take the lead on cybersecurity legislation. I thought it was pretty interesting. It hasn't gone anywhere as of yet. Um, there hasn't been much legislating on cyber issues since that bill passed last December, but this may be an idea that, that gets some legs next year. Well, even then you would have disagreements over who should chair that should it be intel committee or armed services or everybody else what i think find is interesting there's also the issue of the understanding of the technology by those in government talk right. about the older crowd i mean these are these are not young people in most cases in a lot, a of, lot cases, of the right. a lot of cases <laughs> uh many of the leadership certainly are, are up there in age they may not necessarily understand the technology they have law and business backgrounds not they're not engineers right. Even conversations about internet kill switches and other things right. that we've seen just demonstrate kind of the lack of understanding. Is this an issue where uh, you don't have people at the highest levels that get the issues as well as they probably should? I think that there are a there's a very small handful 
of members of Congress who really get this issue. And that, that number is growing, and you see new people coming in every year, and you see, you know, the old saying, you can, old dogs learning new tricks. Mm -hmm. You do see some folks who have spent a lot of time trying to learn about this. Uh, Carper, who I mentioned from Delaware, he always jokes that, that he gets introduced as Congress's leading authority on cyber issues, and he said, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed yes. man is king, you know? So um, he also says that, the, that in Congress, the expertise is a mile wide and an inch deep. And so you really, it, it's very hard for a member of Congress to dig in and really learn a complex issue like this. They have so many things to think about and worry about, and they're dealing with their constituents and all. And it's really reflected in the work and right. in the inability to focus on this, which is one reason why I always thought that a cyber committee dedicated to that issue would be effective because the Homeland Security Committees can be dealing with any issue under the sun in a given week, and their attention is going to be pulled to immigration or the TSA's problems at airports or, or whatever, and cyber can slip down and be the third or fifth or tenth most important item on their agenda in a given, given week, and it makes it very difficult to keep that sustained attention that the issue really calls for. What do you think of the, this new breed of lawmakers, that, like people like Devin Nunes and, and Adam Schiff, mm -hmm. Ted Lieu, who has a degree in computer science from Stanford, Will Hurd. Will Hurd, sure. Yeah, uh, we've had him on this, this podcast before because he's ex-CIA. Right, right. Do you see them bringing uh, their expertise to the Congress? Are they the key to future change? You, you, we would expect in the next 20, 30 years, just about everybody who gets elected to Congress is going to have a computer background in one way or another. Right. But is this the, the new group, that's the kids on the block, that are going to bring some awareness right. to Congress? Sure. And the people you mentioned are, are very much in that camp, and, and they're doing that, and they're accomplishing that. To, to a degree, it's, a, it's an uphill climb, and you still have, I, I would say the great majority of members of Congress, when they do pay attention to this issue, they kind of immediately break it down into some standard O-line way of thinking about it. Of, you know, Well, we obviously need regulation here, or oh, we obviously right. need tax breaks here. Right. And, and it, it's just knee-jerk, and it's a really kind of instant analysis, and, and you go back to the things that you know rather than trying to dive into something that's very new and different. But it's great having some of these newer faces there who are forcing the conversation in different, more provocative, and I think more, you know, ultimately productive ways. You write a lot about in the book about voluntary compliance. And sure. I just chuckle every time right. I see it. This right. idea that it's really this political philosophy conflicts, the idea of big government versus private industry, mandatory versus voluntary. Right. And these... Private companies are pushing back against regulation because they, they don't want to be over they're over regulated on EPA and on everything else. Here's another regulation that's it seems like a big government uh, coming down on them. But the voluntary thing just again makes me chuckle every time I read it. This idea that they are going to give themselves regulations essentially that uh, that's going to make their lives more difficult. I mean, this seems though to be pervasive throughout the conversation about cyber. Yes, and that's true, and it, it does raise issues for sure. Um, nobody wants to be regulated, and there is a certain amount of regulation in this space. I would say that the, the industry argument that is most convincing is that 
the cyber environment and threat landscape changes so quickly that it's very difficult to write regulations in this space. There, the initial policymaking attempts here were very much regulatory oriented, and that came to a head in Congress toward the end of 2012. There was a big debate in the Senate, and ultimately this big comprehensive cyber bill that included mandatory regulations and rules for industry fell apart, and they couldn't advance it. And the Obama administration recognized that they weren't going to get a big reg bill through, and they switched gears and said, okay, let's try this in partnership. And it really wasn't a, it wasn't a first choice, and there probably were a lot of people in the administration who weren't very happy about it as a choice at all, but it was almost in the absence of other alternatives. And, and the administration in some ways sought to call industry's bluff and say, okay, if you say you can do it and you can do it in a voluntary way, here's the ball, you run with it, and right. let's see. But we are going to create a framework around which this is going to happen, and we need to create some accountability here. And that accountability question continues to be a very difficult one to define. That I think you have proactive things going on within industry to a much, much greater degree than you did five years ago, but it's still really, really hard to prove that this is happening, to demonstrate that you're doing it, to, you know, if you're a company, to kind of keep the regulators off your back. There's been this real restlessness among the federal agencies who feel like, maybe even without any direct evidence, but they feel like we really should be doing something in this area. And, and what do regulators do? Regulators regulate, right? right? So they want to do something. And, and there's always this desire to, well, we have to leave our mark in some way on this. So this push and pull continues, and it's going to continue for a while on, okay, what should industry be doing, and how can they show and demonstrate that it's effective, and how can the government be satisfied that this is happening? This is very much a work in progress. I think they've put some of the pieces in place to make this happen, but the results aren't in, right. and we'll see. Well, one of the agencies that helped put some of the pieces in place and is somewhat has an ability to supersede partisan politics is NIST. It's the yes. National Institute of Standards and Technology. It used to be the Bureau of Standards back in the day. Right. They developed the framework for cybersecurity, which I, I, they're not very well known outside of the Beltway, but they're really well-liked and respected across the board. Does this help them get beyond these partisan issues and, and create something we can all get behind? The NIST framework and the NIST framework process, maybe even more importantly, this process of engagement between the government side and, and with industry and among industry has been very valuable. And the industry groups and people who participate in this just speak awfully highly of that. And they want, the, the business groups want to use this NIST framework and say this is the basis. It was developed by them. NIST was more of a an enabler in this process than the one sitting down writing the standards. NIST is a fascinating little agency. And as you said, it's the Bureau of Standards. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it goes back to Thomas Jefferson right. in its original forms. But um, what they really tried to do was look at what industry was doing very well in cybersecurity and look at existing standards and create a context for that and create a way for an average company or a big company or you know a, a utility operator to 
get started on it and, and say, okay, because that was what, what we've been hearing continuously, that companies say, I don't even know how to get started with this. How do I build a cybersecurity program? Well, they gave them a roadmap for it. And here's the argument in the regulatory side that things are going to change. And what you really need is a structure that ensures that you're looking at cybersecurity every day and every week and every month. And that costs resources, so you need to find a way to do that cost effectively. Um, you need to be able to reevaluate your computer systems, the access that you're given, who, giving to your employees, who has access to what, what you're connecting to and interacting with and, and all. And the thing is, as, as you know, these dynamics change. They can change on an hourly basis. Right. Well, I mean, that's a, we were always asked in the museum, where is our cyber exhibit and we're like we we have one but we'd love to have one updated but i have to change it right. once a week right exactly. yeah i mean it would be the most the most difficult and time-consuming part of the museum because there's constant change constant flux right what i think people may not understand it sounds like nist is a bunch of accountants and bureaucrats these are the organization that's chock full of nobel prize winners in yes. physics right i mean these are these are pretty high-level people that are thinking about lots of problems. Right. And they were brought in to kind of chew up this cybersecurity problem. They're, that's a pretty good team to bring in to look at this. Right. It, it's scientists and, and doctor, uh, doctorate candidates yeah. and doctoral candidates and um, engineers. It, it's a really impressive collection of folks. And they, they can have the dialogues with industry. And it's different than having a dialogue with your regulator if say you're you're a telecom company and you're talking to the FCC you're talking to a bureaucrat or you're talking to a lawyer or, or something of that nature very different conversation than if you're talking to an engineer and the two of you have the device on the table and you're both looking right. at it and turning it upside down and all of that those are the kind of conversations that that NIST engages in and they are providing pretty much the administrative support and structure for this presidential commission on cybersecurity that's supposed to produce a big report for the next president by the end of the year. I was just up in Minneapolis for their latest meeting this, this past week. They've been doing a road show around the mm -hmm. country and the NIST people organize it and, and bring it together. And that was really fascinating. They had consumer advocates and technologists and, and folks of that nature and, and some industry people who appeared before the, the commission on last Tuesday on, and uh, the 23rd and said, well, here's where we should go and here are our recommendations. And it was a really good dialogue. It was very interesting. So while this is the paradigm of competency, let's talk about another agency, the Department of Homeland Security. That's a funny juxtaposition. I'm right trying there. to make it funny. Um, <laughs> DHS is one of the one of the agencies that really kind of takes on the, the the heavy lifting when it comes to cyber defense in the United States. The problem is they're not well respected across the board, not well liked by many people, and that's not completely their fault. They're a new agency; they've been given right. somewhat ambiguous regulatory uh, powers, somewhat ambiguous bureaucratic powers overall. But they, they're seen as heavy-handed. Do you see that as a possible problem? It's, it it's <laughs> Sure. It, it's definitely a problem. And, yeah. and it goes back to the very nature of DHS. Yeah. It, was a, it was a cobbled-together department. And it's always had a, a problem with its mission definition. It's always have a, had a problem in getting the right people in the right places right. there. And 
the industry side has always been terrified of DHS assuming a role as a regulator and telling them how to secure their systems and saying, we're going to tell you how to do this and we're going to monitor you and we're going to punish you if you don't do it right. They don't, you know, companies don't want anybody doing that and sometimes they probably have to have somebody doing that, but in particular they don't want DHS right. doing that and they don't feel like the department has the expertise to look at their operations and oversee them in that way. They feel like there are all kinds of mixed messages. Now, I think that, that since Jay Johnson came in as secretary a couple of years ago, there have been really, really strong efforts to better organize their cybersecurity program and all. And, and I, I tried to break down in the book what they do well and what they don't do well. Mm -hmm. And in creating the very operational mechanical system for sharing cyber threat information, they, they get pretty good grades on doing this. It, it's an operational role, and that's largely seen as something that they can accomplish. In terms of their outreach to industry, in terms of spreading the word and, and doing that, they don't get such good grades. Right. And it just doesn't seem to be quite in their, you know, it's not their strong suit right. to do that. Well, it seems they're pretty good at detecting attacks once they're happening and tracing them back right. to the op. I mean, that's that Einstein program. Sure. That used. Uh, and OPM's a great example of this where they didn't prevent the OPM hack, but they were able right. to trace it back uh, and detect it once it happened. I, I wonder about the DHS we talked about. I mean, it's an organization that could one day be a great organization, and there are people who work for it that are very well respected, but how hard must it be to hire high-level cyber experts, technologists, to an agency that no one really likes right. to keep them there because you're paying them as a GS-11 when they could be making a lot right. of money in private industry of Silicon Valley? So, I mean, is there a dramatic brain drain coming out of DHS? You, you learn a little bit about cyber, you get good at it, and all of a sudden you're hired away. I mean, you see that CIA, yep. you see that NSA, these agencies, once you're trained up, once you have a security clearance, you get pulled off by Alitos or Lockheed Martin. I imagine cyber because it's such the growth industry that that's got to be a real issue for DHS. There was tremendous churn there and turnover, and it stabilized a bit in the last couple of years. They've gotten a lot of the infrastructure in place for the way that they want to manage this. Now, here's another thing that the DHS doesn't do particularly well, and that's interact with Congress. DHS people, I think, very correctly identified a need to reorganize their cybersecurity alignment and the way that they've structured personnel there, in part because they wanted to keep people and they wanted people's roles to be better defined and they wanted people to have clearer areas of responsibility. There's so many overlapping areas and things people just didn't know. Is that mine? Is that theirs? I, I don't quite know who's in charge right. of this. Um, so they came up with a plan, but they didn't tell Congress about it. And, and you know, lawmakers get very jealous about yeah. that kind of thing. Maybe it's silly, but they do get very jealous about that. And when members of the Congressional Oversight Committees, the, the Homeland Security Committees, got wind of this, they were infuriated. And, and they said, wait a minute, you can't just up and do that. You need our authorization to do that. And it, it caused a whole reset, and DHS had to go back and say, and kind of come hat in hand to Congress and say, please, we'd very much like to do this. And I think that, you know, the savvy lawmakers know that it, it made a lot of sense, but they weren't going to let DHS just run off and do it on its own. 
I think that this is maybe the one piece of cyber legislation that we might see this year, which would be a DHS reorganization in the cyber divisions. Um, that could get out at the end of the year, attached to something else probably. Right. It's not a very sexy bill, but it does important things. And I think that would help on the personnel side. I think that since Jay Johnson came in, he made a real commitment to getting the right people in the right places. There are a number of folks who, who get high marks and are well thought of throughout the cybersecurity community. I wouldn't be surprised a lot of these people will go in about six, four or five months after the, the transition to the new administration. But a lot of them are political appointments anyway. So a, a number of them yeah. are, yeah. And that's going to be interesting. If you think back in 2008, 2009, the last time we had a transition, cybersecurity was not an right. issue at this level. And at that time, the, the outgoing Bush administration really put an emphasis on it in its transition work that it did for the next administration. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a woman named Melissa Hathaway who prepared the transition materials on cybersecurity. And the Obama team was so impressed they kept her on and she did a, this very influential policy review in the early months of the Obama administration that if you look back at that document, a lot of that set the course for where the administration went. So we'll see. I, I'm fascinated to see how this next turnover goes and how DHS manages this it, it's they're always in such a tenuous situation and right. it's such a fragile department in so many ways that you feel like I, well I know that there's a lot of concern out in the community that oh my goodness when this when all these people go out the door we're going to have to start all over again well and it's hard to blame DHS for trying to circumvent Congress and the congressional committees well. I mean Jay Johnson <laughs> who we've talked about as being a pretty effective DHS secretary his his confirmation hearing, which is as partisan as it gets, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of conversation about would this guy be good. It was a lot more about what is my pet project, how am I going to stand right. in front of this guy. And, and so I, I, I can see what he would want not right. to get shoved down in some kind of congressional committee nonsense. Right. The interesting thing there is that Johnson navigated his way out of that, I thought, very intelligently and, and effectively. Um, he came in, the, the department was just a, a lightning rod of politics at the time. Janet Napolitano was the secretary, and she was seen as carrying the ball for Obama on immigration mm -hmm. policies, which just made every conversation with her extremely partisan on Capitol Hill. Johnson got it out of that context and was thought of, and is thought of, as a very effective manager and communicator. And from the very beginning, he realized, I need to tend to the people who have the purse strings and have the control over my department on Capitol Hill. And he spent a lot of time nurturing relationships up there. And so, you know, you would hear congressional Republicans who were just strafing every other member of the administration. And then they'd come to Jay Johnson and say, well, but Jay Johnson's doing a nice job. <laughs> I, that's why I thought that the, the thing with the reorganization was just such a, an odd stumble by them that it was very, it was very tone deaf mm -hmm. politically. But, yeah, when you look at it, you're, you're trying to accomplish something, and you say, oh, okay, I'm going to put this through the committee grinder where yeah. it's going to get lost. Of course, you know, but, but it's, you have to play the political game. Yeah, a little bit more about uh, easier to ask forgiveness than permission in some cases. Right. I'd like to take a quick two minutes to tell you more about Blue Apron. If you live in D.C. or New York or any major metropolitan area, 
Eating great food at a restaurant can be incredibly expensive. Cooking your own food is cheaper, but not so much if you want to get high-quality ingredients and not just stuff you can buy in a box or a can or a package that is designed to withstand a nuclear holocaust. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. They achieve this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. And those who spend a lot eating out or at high-end grocery chains can now spend under $10 per person for a delicious meal. To give you an idea of what I'm talking about, some of the meals available in September include paprika spiced shrimp and cheddar grits with tomato and sweet corn, spicy hoisin chicken stir-fry with baby bok choy and sesame ginger cucumber salad, eggplant and chicken tagine with islander pepper, tomato, and couscous, and summer udon noodle salad with cherry tomatoes, corn, and summer sweet pepper. Sounds pretty impressive. To be perfectly honest, I had to ask most of my office how to pronounce a lot of that stuff, but I can tell you, even if you can't say it, it tastes really good. So again, for less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. They know that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for the community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. Blue Apron brings you variety. New recipes are created weekly and are not repeated within a year. Choose your meals from a variety of recipes, or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Blue Apron is flexible. Customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. You can choose delivery options to fit your needs. There's no weekly commitment here, so you only get deliveries when you want them. And Blue Apron is easy. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in less than 40 minutes, even by someone like me. The great thing is these cards have pictures. They tell you what dicing is supposed to look like or mincing or, you know, what a pan looks like. So even somebody as inept as I am can make these meals great. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash spycast. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash spycast. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I want to ask you, go back to privacy a little bit and, and ask you about the Snowden effect. I'm going to group in like the WikiLeaks effect, the sure. Chelsea Manning effect, the Apple versus FBI effect. Uh, you mentioned a lot of different cyber bills that were attempted to be pushed through, and, and many of them met untimely deaths because of the uh, the unwillingness to be seen as being an antithetical to privacy concerns, right. being you know being. Uh, public perception against oh if you know this company shares this information with DHS the NSA will have it the next day right it's like, the NSA probably already has it but that but that can you talk a little bit about how that changed the dynamic because I I really think that the uh, Comey versus Apple and Congress the idea of backdoors and building right. in vulnerabilities and things uh, is not very well understood but at the same time it seems to have put a real uh, a, real kind of a roadblock to some of the work getting done in Congress. Right. I, that's absolutely true. And the thing is that a number of these things, things like cyber threat indicator sharing, they're in a different place than the type of things that Snowden was revealing in his leaks. It, it's, it's a different category of information, but it all gets mashed together. Right. And it certainly gets mashed together in the public imagination and Opponents and groups try to stoke those fears, certainly. And 
well, maybe the positive thing is that it, it very much has provoked a debate over what should our standard be for privacy? We don't have a national privacy policy. We don't even know exactly what we want here. And this has forced this debate in all of these different areas, including in the, the bill that passed Congress last year that was signed into law. What, what we were talking about there is really securing critical infrastructure and preventing hacks that are designed to bring down the electric grid. Right. That's a lot different than collecting, you know, communications of average citizens from their phone calls and whatever. It really has nothing to do with that. But the two debates ended up side by side, yeah. and people used the outrage over one to help block the other. Now, the legitimacy of it is that you are talking in some instances about personal information changing hands here and the fact that, well, we don't really have a control for that. We don't have something that assures people that this is being treated in the way that it should be, with right. the sensitivity that it should be treated with. And I think that the the authors of some of the original cyber bills, the people at the, the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, kind of didn't get that nuance early on. And then they, they kind of tried to backfill in some privacy protection elements, and then that wasn't working. And then they a little more desperately tried to backfill in some privacy elements. And then I, I think the, the people like Richard Burr, who's a Republican who's running for re-election in North Carolina, and Dianne Feinstein, mm -hmm. the longtime Democratic senator from California, they really rethought this and realized we have to tackle this privacy thing up front, and we have to make privacy a central element of this. And I think what they produced went well beyond what we've seen before. I, it wasn't enough to satisfy the civil liberties groups and all who said that there are some obvious vulnerabilities there. And, and I think Feinstein would be the first to acknowledge that. And she, she was just beseeching people on the Senate floor saying, we have to take this first step. We've tried to put all this stuff in. I know it's not going to be perfect. There are going to be problems with it. You know, that something's going to happen and somebody's going to get hurt. But said, let us build out from here. Right. Let us at least take this first step. I think there was an honest effort to address it. And I think that it comes in the context of getting a debate underway about what we really want in this country when it comes to privacy. And is it a choice between privacy and security? How are those lines drawn? It's all still to be determined. Let me ask you a broad kind of inside baseball, inside politics question. With with congressional terms only being two years, with the election cycles being so long now, essentially any member of the House of Representatives is either a lame duck or running for re-election at all times. What are the likelihood, since this is still politically charged, that we're going to see anything that I'm thinking of Right now, there's not a lot that's going to happen before the election. No one wants to be seen as coming down one side or the other to get hammered in the election. And then there'll be lame ducks. And then a whole new Congress comes in that has to be retrained about cyber, has to be kind of get their feet wet doing other things. And then all of a sudden, they're running for re-election again. I know this is big, philosophical, wonky question, but with something as important as cyber, uh, it, it seems as though this could be a real problem moving forward. Yeah, the, there is a huge problem in terms of continuity and expertise and engagement and keeping the focus on that. And I think that's why 
things, if you step back, things like the, the NIST framework process are so important so that there are ongoing points of engagement between federal officials and state officials and industry people and privacy folks. I don't think that there is any real big cyber legislative push coming. There's a strong sentiment to let the information sharing law that passed last year work for a little while and see what the next steps are. Mm -hmm. But there are big issues pending, and one is tackling in a direct, comprehensive way the privacy questions that, that you're raising. They pop up everywhere. They pop up across the, the federal government at different agencies and in different contexts, and they keep getting dealt with in these very siloed ways. So say the Communications Commission is dealing with it right. one way, and, and another department is dealing with it another way, that's not the most effective, efficient, best way to approach this issue. So I think there is a strong desire to come at it in a way of, let's sort through these issues, let's hammer them out. But honestly, I have to say that that, that in any case would be a multi-Congress process. Right. It's so complicated and controversial and the, the learning curve is so steep on this. People need to really, really dig in and be brought up to speed. And as you said, if you're a member of Congress, you have a thousand other problems and you have to raise money and you have to get reelected. So. so this summer, your old job at Roll Call and your current job have kind of come together a little bit with the cyber element of the current presidential campaigns. And uh, with full disclosure, I'm somewhat closely uh, tied to this, but I want to ask you about the DNC hack and Russia. This is not the first time the Russians have been involved in campaigns. I think Estonia right. back... Well, you know, six or seven years, maybe more than that, eight years ago was where they kind of tested this out a little bit. And then in Georgia in 08, before the invasion, they, they right. did a pretty heavy hack against the Georgian defense grid. Right. Georgia and Estonia are very different than the United States. Is, is this a whole new ballgame that we're seeing where foreign guys, I mean, it's one thing to hack OPM and steal secrets like the Chinese did. It's another thing to potentially, as it looks, to try to influence American elections. It's, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting case. Another really interesting case. It seems, it strikes me that it is, it, it's very heavy handed in a way that we're going to go in and expose this stuff and try to hurt this political party. Um, you know, the Russians have a very sophisticated intelligence service. So the goals, the means, could they have done it? Absolutely. The FBI hasn't said categorically right. that they've done it. And the FBI is very good at attribution. I'm sure they know who did it at this point. Uh, we don't know what the the DNC's security protocols were. Were they following the this framework? I don't know. But, you know, what we have seen and what we know is that Russia and China and others have mapped out our critical infrastructure. They've been detected in our gas pipeline systems, mm -hmm. in our electricity grid systems. And why are they doing that? They're they're laying the groundwork for a potential future conflict right. if it happens. And I have to assume that our folks are doing the exact same thing. You'd hope right? so, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we just yeah, don't, we don't advertise it quite as much as they do. Right, yeah. right. But you're right. In, in Georgia, they they pretty much knocked down their systems. They knocked down the system in Ukraine, the, the electric grid. Mm -hmm. These are the things that will be features of future conflicts. There's no question about it. Uh, when we detect the Chinese going through and mapping out an electric grid system, 
you know, one of the, I've, I've heard defense people say this, that one of their great fears is, well, they, they get their electricity and they get their telecom services from private providers. All of those hundreds and hundreds of bases around the country, their electricity comes from your local power company. Right. So, you know, one of the scenarios that, that I've heard bandied about is if uh, we were in a conflict over Taiwan with China, that they might try to bring down the power system outside of, uh, outside of um, you know, Fort Bragg so right. that our airborne divisions can't be mobilized or whatever. All of those kind of things are in the offing, and it, it, there's a lot of pretty scary potential out there. Yeah, well, I mean, the idea of, of bringing down the power supply and, and stopping the food supply from moving around. We're a country that only has a couple days' worth of right. food in any one place. We depend on movement of food. I mean, there could be many, many lives lost and trillions of dollars in damage just for something as simple, as simple, quote unquote, as bringing down the power supply. It doesn't take a nuclear weapon anymore. Right, right. Well, it, and it may also just take a rifle, actually. Right, well, yeah, you talk about that in the book. I mean, the idea of just shooting at a power grid. Right, there, yeah. which, which scared the life out of cyber professionals. There was an episode in, in Metcalf, California, a few years back, where somebody took shots at a, at a, a power station um, in the hills in, in California, and um, the, the local utility responded very well and very quickly, but everybody realized, wow, if you knock that thing down, the lights were going to go off throughout the state, mm -hmm. and you were going to have a catastrophe on your hands. And that, it was a physical attack, but the cybersecurity ramifications became clear very quickly, and they mobilized a lot of activity and attention. So... Yeah, there, there's some scary stuff out there. Yeah, well, I, I want to get back to campaigns real quickly because you, this is your, you know, obviously your expert at this. I, I, I think I remember reading in 2012 both the Romney and Obama campaigns were, were hacked or, or there's a, a denial of service attack against at least the Romney website. Right. For, for our listeners out there, if you knocked a campaign website offline for a couple days, a couple hours, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars that you wouldn't be able to use otherwise. Right. You're being lost from donations. Yeah, and that's the, it's not so much the getting the message out, yeah. it's that these websites are, are conduits for bringing in your fundraising and, and all of that, so the cost could be astronomical, absolutely. Do, do we need a department of cyber? Does this need to be, are we getting to the point now where this is a cabinet level problem uh, that that you know, kind of supersede the twenty whatever different agencies and organizations that deal with it. Do we need to, to bring this all together and create arguably more bureaucracy, but centralize some of these issues? Well, I you know I go back and forth on this on, because you can see the pitfalls of doing that as well. And and standing up a new department is no small chore, and it brings a whole bunch of attendant problems with it. But as, as we were saying before, the the Department of Homeland Security can't focus just on cybersecurity. And when the Secretary of Homeland Security is sitting around the cabinet level with the other top officials, he may have to talk about any number of issues before ever getting to cyber. And it just occurs to me that there should be somebody sitting at that table whose portfolio is cybersecurity yeah. and is going to say, Mr. President, Mrs. President, and fellow cabinet members, here are the top three things going on right now in cyber that we need to be worried about, and this is where I need your help. And it doesn't get that kind of focused attention, either 
in the federal bureaucracy, at the highest levels at the White House, or on Capitol Hill. And I think that, you know, there are bureaucratic arguments, there are cost arguments, there are all kinds of things where you could say, ah, you don't want to create a new department. But we do need some sort of of, of answer to ensure that this issue, which could affect every citizen, every part of our economy, gets the kind of attention that it deserves, that it really cries out for. Well, you're seeing that at a lower level. The CIA just restructured itself for the first time in a very long time, creating another directorate focused on cyber. You have U.S. Cyber Command, the military coming together. I mean, that's the one step below, really, the cabinet level. I mean, you think perhaps that could be an impetus for some time in the future changes in that direction? It it could be. I think that, again, Congress is going to have to get to it. And a lot of people say, well, you're going to need some horrible major event. I'm saying you need to have a a cyber 9-11, hopefully not, something like that to really get people moving in the right direction. Yeah, I I hope not. And all of these slightly lesser events, I've heard, I can't tell you how many times. Well, this one, I think, is going to be the one that really spurs something to happen. And then the next one happens, and it's tough. So uh, right now, I think you have a lot of very smart, well-meaning people who are trying to engage on this. You have a lot of companies in the private sector who own a lot of the targets here um, who want to do a good job, who are weighing the costs and benefits of engaging on this who sometimes make the decision, I can't afford to spend the extra money to have somebody just look at cybersecurity for me. And in in strictly economic terms, it's hard to fault them for that. But we're in a strange new world here where everybody's a potential target. The consequences can be enormous and terrifying. And so there needs to be a, a strategy and a national approach that recognizes the seriousness of that. Charlie Mitchell is the editor and co-founder of Inside Cybersecurity. He is the author of a fascinating new book, Hacked, the Inside Story of America's Struggle to Secure Cyberspace. If you've read other cyber books, this one is very, very different. Well worth the read. Charlie, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at Great. SpyCast. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.